You are listening to a Fredericksburg Christian Fellowship audio presentation. Most of you know that I am very interested in prayer. And probably the reason for that was as I grew up, we did a lot of praying at our house. And when Yvonne and I were first married, we began to pray and see some amazing answers to prayer. And I've shared with you this story of one of the most amazing when we went into the ministry. We moved into a home right across the street from the church. That was pretty convenient. And our next door neighbor was a man who hated the church. And he hated any mention of any of it because every time the evangelism team left the church, they came by his house first. And he was tired of hearing about Christ and the whole business. Well, we shared with him a good bit. One night we shared with him to about midnight. I and another man, an older man, and he asked us if we would please leave his house and never come back again. Well, I could hardly never come back. I was his next door neighbor. And we had some further interaction and we continued to pray for him. He was the least likely man that I ever thought would come to Christ. Then we moved away, but we continued to pray. And one Sunday morning at the early service, Yvonne saw Joe at our church. We wondered if he'd come there to blow up the place or something. Because he hated the church. He hated that church in particular with all of its evangelism. But he said, no, I have come to Christ. He lost his wife. He lost his little girl. He lost his business. And then he realized his need for Christ. It was an amazing answer to prayer. Shortly after that, as a man in his early 40s, he died. He came to Christ just in time. Ask and you will receive. Now let's look at the outline of what we're going to think about today. The design to ask. God has designed His kingdom to function with prayer. The desire to ask. What's going to be the motivation that would cause us to pray? And then the delight to receive. Now we all like to see those answers. It's like to see the good things that God supplies. So we want to see how all of this fits together. The standard interpretation of this passage reminds me of when I was a little boy, just about Chandler's age, maybe in the years after that. There was an amazing phenomenon in the summertime in our neighborhood about the time that you awakened from your nap, about middle of the afternoon, all of a sudden, you heard something. You could only hear it faintly in the distance. But it was coming closer. It was the tinkling of a little bell on the little miniature truck of the ice cream man. And this guy was coming closer and closer, and you knew at that moment it was time to tear into the house and find mom and ask her for a dime so that you could get a buddy bar, a popsicle, or an ice cream sandwich. Now, if that didn't work, you would seek ways to step it up a little bit and convince her how your little body needed that cool refreshment on a warm afternoon. And then if that didn't work, asking and seeking you might do something more dramatic like knock your head against the wall or something that would let her know that opportunity is passing us by. All the other kids are out there and now is my moment of opportunity. 
Well, my dad wouldn't let us have the fits at our house. And he didn't allow us to argue with mom. But that was a standard procedure for children in the neighborhood. And somehow that seems to be the way a lot of Christians approach this passage of asking and seeking and knocking. We want God to give us the goodies, whatever it is we feel like we need at that point. And we're trying to convince Him that if He will just give us uh, what we are asking for, sometimes with maybe selfish motives, we all have things that we need, but it seems that uh, we're thinking about His giving and my receiving instead of some other things that would be connected with this passage. God's not just in a blessing wagon coming into the neighborhood so that we have to convince Him of all of the little things we need. There's something far more than that, and there's something different as we will see in the passage. Now, why is it so important to consider every Scripture in its context and in harmony with the entire Bible? J.I. Packer warns that a misinterpreted Bible is a misunderstood Bible, which will lead us out of God's way rather than in it. The structure of a building depends on its foundation. So when we come to a passage of Scripture, we want to kind of excavate around into the context and find out what's going on there, determine the background for the proper interpretation of the passage. Here's a little book, again by J.I. Packer, Fundamentalism and the Word of God. He encourages us to this end, the Word of God is an exceedingly complex unity. The different items and the various kinds of material which make it up, laws, promises, liturgies, genealogies, arguments, narratives, meditations, visions, homilies, parables, and the rest, do not stand in Scripture as isolated fragments, but as parts of a whole. Every text has its immediate context in the passage from which it comes, its broader context in the book to which it belongs, and its ultimate context in the Bible as a whole. And it needs to be rightly related to each of these contexts if its character, scope, and significance is to be adequately understood. He continues further. The scope and significance of one passage is to be brought out by relating it to other passages. And then he quotes the Westminster Confession. The infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. In our own confession that we follow in our church here, the London Baptist Confession, it says something very similar. All things in Scripture are not alike, alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other that not only the learned but the unlearned in a due sense, due use of ordinary means may attain to a sufficient understanding of them. 
The infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there's a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, which is not manifold but one, it must be searched by other places that speak more clearly. Well, there's only one correct interpretation of Scripture, but there would be many applications. We may not always know that one correct interpretation, but we search after it. And we keep in mind that the main things are the plain things. And the plain things are the main things that we could not possibly misunderstand. Serious error and distortion can result from pulling verses out of context and interpreting them apart from the complete testimony of Scripture. Apostle Paul tells us all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now when we come to verses 7 through 12 in Matthew 7, it looks like we've come to a completely different topic. How does this fit in with what we studied about um, three or four weeks ago back during Christmas holidays, our last lesson from the sermon? If you're in your Bible, if you'll look in verses 1 and 2, we've just been told not to criticize others. Judge not that you be not judged, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged, and with what measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Don't criticize others because it can come back to bite you. These are the guys who minimize and criticize the other guys whose enterprise has made them rise above the guys who criticize. So that was the thing that we were taught beginning in this chapter. And then we had some observations on a critical spirit. The spirit that condemns is a self-righteous spirit. A person with a critical spirit has a tendency to become hypercritical. A critical spirit habitually expresses its opinion without all the facts. A critical spirit doesn't mind sharing his criticism with others. A critical spirit is ready to make a final judgment on a situation or individual and just mark it off. And then if you look in verse 5, we're reminded that we are hypocrites if we don't straighten out our own problems before we try to go to work on others. Verse 5, you hypocrite, first remove the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, here's where our passage fits in. If I can get the beam out of my eye, then I can see my need for the grace to be able to discriminate, but not judge, and I come and I ask and I seek, and I knock to receive that grace. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. And most of the time as we read this little verse, or as we hear it quoted, very popular verse, I'm just thinking about uh, things that I need God to do, or things that I need Him to provide. But the major emphasis here, I believe, is on God's grace. God's grace to enable us to live this life that He's called us to live. Without His grace, it would be impossible to follow the dictates of the sermon thus far. 
Well, the design to ask. God has designed His kingdom to function based on prayer. Cars run on gasoline or diesel. Businesses run on profits. The government runs on your money. But the kingdom runs on prayer. God's kingdom runs on prayer. You can remember Abraham's servant who prayed to God and God directed him to Rebekah, who would be wife for his master's son and the heir. And she was a girl that didn't mind watering the camels, you remember. Pretty unusual situation there. Jacob prayed to God and God inclined the heart of his irate brother so that they met in peace and friendship. Samson prayed to God and God showed him a well where he could quench his thirst and go on to be judge in Israel. Hannah prayed and she finally had a little baby and later on there was a national revival in Israel through her son Samuel. David prayed and God defeated the council of Ahithophel. Hezekiah prayed and God defeated the Assyrian army and gave him 15 extra years to live in his life. Nehemiah prayed and God inclined the heart of the king of Persia to grant him a leave of absence to visit and rebuild Jerusalem. Esther and Mordecai prayed and God defeated the evil purposes of Haman and saved the Jews from destruction. The believers in Jerusalem prayed and God opened the prison doors and set Peter free, although Herod had planned to kill him. Paul prayed that his thorn in the flesh might be removed and his prayer brought a large measure of spiritual strength. But evidently the thorn in the flesh was not removed. Prayer is kind of like the dove that Noah released from the ark. Noah was encouraged when the dove took off and came back with an olive leaf in his mouth, knowing that there was some green vegetation somewhere. But he was also encouraged when the dove took off and didn't return. And sometimes that's the way prayer is. We're sending it up, but we don't see the immediate effect of it. We may not ever know on this earth the answer to some of our prayers. But what do we do? We keep on praying, trusting that God is using those prayers in His purposes, in His kingdom, and He will answer those prayers in His good time, in His way. Now, why did God set up the kingdom this way? Paul again tells us, I desire that men everywhere pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. I don't know why God did it this way, but I could think of some good reasons why I would have done it this way. And here they are in your study guide. To remind us of who we are and who God is. Now, we humans often get this mixed up just like Adam and Eve did. I don't go around claiming to be God, but I start doing things my own way. And I start looking over here at some other folks and wondering why they aren't doing it my way. Because my way is probably a little uh, better way. Well, that's when I'm getting over into the area of God's providence. And we don't want to ever question God's providence. Oh, it brings forth questions but we want to trust Him. Then I'm kind of looking around, seeing what everybody's doing, and weighing it against what I'm doing, and then all of a sudden, I get a pathology report. And I realize that my life here on this earth 
is not my own. And then I realize my need for God's grace in my life and for that strength that only He can give for healing or for seeing this thing through, whatever it might be. And then I really get down to the business of praying. I am reminded who I am and I am reminded who God is. I'm particularly reminded of myself with all of my weakness and inadequacies. What if we didn't have prayer? What would we have left? Fatalism, I suppose. Whatever will be, will be. And there's no reason to change anything or think about anything. That's just the way it's going to be. And there it is. Now, here's a question for you. How does prayer do anything about it anyway? I don't know. But I do know that it does. Listen to this. James 5.16 The effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Here's what I would say. I would say that God has ordained the end, but He's also ordained the means. And prayer would be the means that He's going to use to reach the end that He has ordained. So praise the Lord. I can be a part of God's great work on this earth through prayer. I can cooperate with Him in what He's doing. My prayer might be getting a little out of bounds over here, but He knows where He's going. And through His Spirit, He pulls me back into the way so that I'm praying according to the will of the Father. We'll look at that. Here's number two. To illustrate His role as a loving Heavenly Father. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? Notice the three words, how much more. If you thought your dad was kind and generous, you haven't seen anything yet when you think about what the Heavenly Father does for us. Now, it might be the opposite of that. Did Your dad was a pretty harsh fellow. But there is a loving Heavenly Father that can meet your needs despite what your dad or anybody else may do in this life. Number three, to teach us to trust in Him and thereby exercise a life of faith. Now, if you're just starting out as a Christian, you might be wondering a little bit about the efficacy of prayer. Is this really real? Does this really work? Well, I can tell you it's not prayer that works. It's God who works through the power of His Spirit. And yet prayer is effective. If you have grown up as a child observing answers to prayer, and you can look back on years of praying in your life, then you're probably on board. You've probably seen some answers to prayer, and that would be a motivation for us to continue to pray that we might see what God is going to do in the future. Uh, number four, that we might have continual fellowship with Him. Somebody said, right, prayer is when you talk to God. And that's true. But prayer is also when you listen to God. And that I'm sure is more important than my just talking with Him because He already knows what I'm going to say before I say it. That doesn't mean I shouldn't say it, but He already knows. But I am listening carefully to hear what He's going to say in a particular matter. 
Because I'm not sure. What's the decision? Do I go this way, that way? What should I do? God will speak to me if I will listen. Now that's the reason we need a still and quiet place. Be still and know that I am God, He says. And that's the reason I think Jesus set the example of being out on the mountain praying all night long. Being up a great while before day. Out somewhere in a desolate, lonely place praying. We've got to have a time to get focused and a time to listen, to have fellowship with Him. And number five, that we would be motivated to live in a right relationship with God. Because prayer is the means of grace by which we have the power and motivation to do what we ought to do. If we respond to that grace, we get more grace. If we resist that grace, the grace kind of withers away. So that's the way we're going to live the Christian life is through His grace that comes through prayer. And of course, we pray according to His Word. Finally, that we might experience hope, joy, peace, and confidence in the Christian life. These qualities are very fragile if you're not prayed up. If you are prayed up, then neither tribulation, nor distress, nor persecution, nor famine, nor nakedness, nor peril, nor sword, nor anything else can rob these qualities from you. So in this new year, we want to stay prayed up as individuals, as families, as a church, as just little groups that we get together and pray. Why are we directed to ask, seek, and knock? Why didn't He just say ask? Well, the language of this verse emphasizes perseverance, spiritual stamina, and importunity. And I hope you took time to read those verses in Luke 11 and also in Luke chapter 18. You have the man whose friend came at midnight. He needed to borrow some bread. He just kept knocking on the door of the neighbor until he got up and gave him the bread because of his importunity, the Scripture says. And then you have the widow woman and the judge who wanted some kind of legal action from the judge and he didn't care, he didn't pay any attention to her. But by her continual coming, she was wearing him out. So he said, I'll give her her request. And that's the analogy that Christ used for our prayer. Perseverance, spiritual stamina, and importunity. Now the word to ask, aiteo, means to beg in the sense of dependence. It means that a spiritual beggar has come empty-handed to the throne of grace to beg for his request because he doesn't have anything with which to pay for it. Sometimes people think, well, if I have done this in my life, then God ought to do this. Kind of like I'm going to be paying Him for what He's doing. Now, he does have some cause and effect relationships there, but be very careful. He's not always answering prayer exactly the way we answer prayer. Now, that word, aiteo, is never used of Christ praying. Christ praying, when you read about it, he uses a different word, erotao. And that means a, an expression for a request when someone is asking another of his equal. This would be two people who are on the same level. And we think about the Trinity. 
And you can see the use of those two words in John 14, 13 and 14. And whatsoever you shall ask, Aiteo, in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And if you shall ask, Aiteo, anything in my name, I will do it. But now a few verses later in the same chapter, Christ is asking. And I will pray, Erotao, the Father, and He will give you another comforter that He may abide with you forever. Now that's comforting. We're coming to the Lord. We're asking all these things. We don't have a lot of credibility to stand on. We're standing on the righteousness of Christ. But the good news is, He ever lives to make intercession for us. And the Holy Spirit intercedes for us in words that we can't utter according to the will of the Father. So we ought to be able to come in full confidence when we come to make these requests. That's the ask part of the verse. Seek means that we ask with a sense of urgency. Knock translates dependence and desire into action. You start banging on the door. What if you've been knocking for a long time and the door is not opened? What do you do then? All the other signs in your life would point to the fact that God just needs to open this door and everything falls into place. But He's not opening the door. I can tell you that God is testing your spiritual strength and strengthening your faith. There's a statement in your study guide. Delay in answer to prayer tests our faith and builds patience and perseverance in our lives. One of my favorite passages in the New Testament is a Canaanite woman, describes a Canaanite woman who comes to Christ on an afternoon. And you get the idea that this is kind of an ongoing thing. She is talking with him and the disciples say, get her out of here. But she comes to him to plead with Christ that He would heal her daughter who is demon-possessed. And Christ gives three very negative answers. In fact, He says, we don't take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. That doesn't sound too nice. But Jesus is up to something. He's always up to something, and He's up to something good. And what He's up to is building her faith. Because with every negative response, from Christ, she gives a little stronger plea. And she's not like some Americans pleading for justice in this matter. She is pleading for His mercy. And His fourth response, fourth time around, He says, O woman, your faith is great. Be it done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. That's a great passage. Mark that one in your Bible. Don't give up. Keep on asking. What will give you the desire to keep on asking over time, even over years? Well, the desire to ask. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it shall be opened. That's a pretty good promise here. Notice that the verse doesn't say when you will receive. Then when will you receive? in God's good time, and we have to trust Him. Or what man is there among you when his son shall ask him for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? He will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, 
Now, that doesn't mean that you're just the most morally depraved person on the block. That just means a sinful man. If you, Dad, as a sinful man, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? The Heavenly Father is not limited by any frailty or limitation or lack of understanding of knowing what you need or anything else. That's the reason we dads and granddads need to come to the Lord to know what we need to give. That it's the thing that He would give. Now we see this father-son analogy in Scripture that God uses to motivate His people to pray. God uses that language all throughout Scripture, the language of the family, father and son, and other things. And this language resonates with the closest and most cherished relationships that we know on earth. So here's good motivation. Look at this. 1 Thessalonians 2.7 But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. And then verse 11 and 12. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each of you, each one of you, and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. We need to note that the promise that we will receive is a conditional promise in Scripture. 1 John 5.14 Now this is the confidence we have in Him that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. If we ask anything according to His will. We must pray according to God's will in order to expect to receive our request. Now we find in Scripture that this process of sanctification, in the process of sanctification, almost every promise carries with it a duty. Now there are people who would say, no, 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 that's, that's not right. In justification, there's nothing we can do to add to God's work. But in sanctification, there are many things we can do. Do you want all these things to be added unto you in life? Then seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. So we want to ask the question this morning, how is the best way to ensure that our prayer will be answered? Number one, pray in Jesus' name, and whatsoever you ask in My name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. John 14, 13. This is not a magic formula. It just simply means on Jesus' account for Jesus' sake. If someone gives you a check with His name signed to it, you may go down to His bank and that little piece of paper with His name will authorize you to draw funds out of His account. Well, it's very similar. We can draw funds out of the bank of heaven in Jesus' name. And that's all that it's talking about here. Though we're undeserving, God sent His Son. He loved us. He recognized His image within us. And He makes it possible for us to receive our needs on account of what Christ has done, paying for the penalty of our sin. Then pray in faith. So Jesus answered and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, 
If you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also you will say to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea, and it will be done. And whatsoever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. Now you want to know the picture in my mind? Here's a mountain over here. I say a word of prayer and zip, that mountain jumps up and goes over into the ocean. And sometimes that's not the way God does it. At our former church back in Birmingham, there was a new building, the old church, and there was a mountain on one side and there was a ravine down on the other side. We didn't need a mountain and a ravine. We needed an athletic field and a parking lot. And one day a guy with a big construction company, a lot of hills over there, even more so than the hill country, he stopped into the church and he said, we need tons and tons of fill dirt right down the road. And we don't want to haul it in from Shelby County. If you would let us cut down that mountain for you, we could fill in that big gully you got out there and have plenty for our own needs. And the pastor said, hey, that's a real good idea. And it didn't cost anything. And then there was the athletic field and the parking lot. It cost something for the parking lot. But the big expense was in the moving of the earth. The mountain was moved. But it was moved by Caterpillar Corporation. Because those guys need to earn money and be able to provide for their families. And God knows that. So He has different ways of doing things. Don't give up on the faith category. Number three, be certain that your life is pleasing to God. Now, don't get discouraged because I want to say something here. Let's read the verse, 1 John 3.22. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. And whatever we ask, we receive of Him because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. Now, who can do that? I mean, all the time. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength every waking moment of your life. No one can do that. But here's something else with which God is very well pleased. A broken and contrite heart. And when I don't do everything He wants me to do, then I can come back to Him with true heartfelt repentance and He'll wipe the slate clean. And we'll start over again. Be sure your life is pleasing to God. I mean, you can be going in God's direction. And you may stumble around and make some mistakes, but He'll get you back on track on that straight and narrow way. Number four, pray according to the Bible. John 15, 7, If you abide in Me and My words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it shall be done for you. And then finally, get some help in prayer. Matthew 18, 19-20, Again I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything, that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For, whether, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. This is not saying we shouldn't go to the prayer closet alone, but from time to time we need a little encouragement in our praying. And we need to pray with others and pray in groups. Then comes the delight to receive. How will we know when God answers our prayer. Well, as we said, we may not know, but we continue to pray. We cannot tell what God is doing behind the scene. Here's the scene for the play, but there are the stagehands back there moving in other scenery and getting ready for the next act. And that's what God is doing, and we can't know about that. But we know this. 
if we need to know, God knows that we need to know, and God will tell us whatever we need to know. Where is most of what we need to know? It's in the Bible. So as Cody said in First Light, we want to be in the Scripture seeking, finding out what we need to know. If receiving answers to prayer is such a delight, why is prayer so neglected a task among Christians? I had to ask myself that question. And I think the answer is this. Sometimes we don't truly recognize our need, nor do we fully recognize God as our Father who waits to meet our need. Matthew 7, 11, again, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father, which is in heaven, give good things to those that ask Him? Now I confess, when I see the good things, it kind of reminds me of the ice cream truck. But in the Greek text, the word things is not there. It's just good Here is the New American Standard translation. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask Him? The word agathos, good, just means good and to my benefit. And it's used for the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. If I'm only thinking of good things on my wish list, then I may miss what Paul told us about things. Philippians 3.7 but whatever things were to my were gained to me, those things I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Things are not what we need. It's grace that we really need. So in the context, in the context, we need grace to practice discernment instead of judgment in Matthew 7. We need grace to harmonize instead of criticize. We need grace to fraternize instead of ostracize. When we truly recognize our spiritual poverty and our need for grace, that's one half of the equation. And the other half is we have a Heavenly Father who waits to meet those needs for us. Can you imagine God waiting He doesn't have to wait. But Isaiah tells us, therefore the Lord will wait that He may be gracious to you. And therefore He will be exalted that He may have mercy upon you for the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for Him. Now He may be waiting on me to pray, to get some things squared away in my life, to deal with some sin, whatever it might be. But he's waiting and he is faithful. 1 Timothy 6.17, a little warning with regard to the things. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, normally things, money, 
but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Everything to enjoy. All things to enjoy. Here's another translation. Who richly provides us with all the joys of life. I want to tell you, the joys of life don't come from things. They come from relationships. They come from qualities in our lives. Like those qualities we review so often. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. If you have those qualities, you are a wealthy man. And then there are the wealth of relationships. Now, God's not saying we shouldn't pray for things that we need. I can think of when we needed an automobile, and we prayed for an automobile, and God provided the automobile several times. So, He's just reminding us, I think, in this passage and as we consider this study, that lasting joy and happiness come from some source besides things. What is that source? Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. You've got a full load of grace coming in. So that if you have the things, you can be happy and not get sidetracked by things. Or if you don't have the things, you can still be happy knowing that God has given exactly what we need. Finally, we come down to the summary of our duty as outlined in God's law. In this entire Sermon on the Mount, He's been talking about the law He came to fulfill, not to destroy, and the Pharisees who have misinterpreted the law. Well, we come to a summary here. So, whatever you wish that others should do, would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Notice He didn't say, if you'll treat others right in the end, it'll pay off. Honesty is, honesty is the best policy. He said, this is the law. And this is the summary of God's law that was given in the Old Testament. Now it's been said that these words are not original with Jesus. Hillel, the great Hebrew rabbi, said, Do not do to thy neighbor what is hateful to thyself. Socrates, many years before Christ, said, what stirs your anger when done to you by others, that do not to others. Confucius, Chinese philosopher, what you do not want done to yourself, do not do to others. So what's the difference? Did Christ just copy these guys? No. If you notice, their words were negative. And uh, their words were passive. Just don't do anything wrong, you'll be all right. But Christ's words were positive and active. Don't just refrain from robbing someone. Do him some good. Don't just avoid harming somebody. Help the guy. Don't rob him. Make sure you give to him. And for sure, don't kill the guy. You've got to love him. You've got to engage him and treat him right. That's what Christ is saying. You have to learn to love him or her. Well, how are you going to do all that? That's pretty difficult on a daily basis. Well, we're going to ask. We're going to seek. We're going to knock. 
We're going to use perseverance and importunity and spiritual stamina. And we get that through the grace that comes when we pray. If you had to take a little inventory this morning of the last year, would you say your prayer life has really been effective for 2011? How could you improve it? Perhaps you need to be connected to the source of power in prayer. And to get that initial connection, you have to first of all recognize that you need it. I'm a sinner and I need God's forgiveness. And then you have to invite Him to cleanse your sin, to credit His righteousness to your account and to come into your life and take control of your life. If you're thinking something like that, He's probably already in there getting your attention to come into your life and to make you the kind of person that He wants you to be that's described in His Word. Now, if you realize that that would be the situation that you're in this morning, I would invite you to pray that prayer with me as I close in prayer. Shall we pray? Lord, we thank You for the Scriptures that tell us how we ought to live. But we realize our great inadequacy in accomplishing those things on a consistent basis. Oh Lord, we look back and we see we've made progress from the past. And we want to grow in spiritual maturity. But we know that You're not finished with us yet. Lord, we thank You that we can be connected with the God of the universe and that You've made that possible through Your Son who died for our sin. Lord, we recognize our helplessness in our sin. And we thank You for sending a Savior. And Lord Jesus, we invite You to come into our lives to cleanse our sin, to make us a new creature, to give us righteousness in the place of guilt. And we ask You to help us to walk in this way to which You have called us. Thank You for many great examples in church history. I pray in this new year, Lord, that we might apply the means of grace, that we might walk more closely to You, that we might share this good news with others, and that we might be encouraged that You are at work in our lives and in our midst. And we praise Your name for all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to a Fredericksburg Christian Fellowship audio presentation.